Chapter Twenty One of The Crown of Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Laura Riley. The Crown of Life by George Gissing. Chapter Twenty One. The passionate temperament is necessarily sanguine. To desire with all one's being is the same thing as to hope. In Piers Otway's case, the temper which defies discouragement existed together with the intellect which ever tends to discourage, with the mind which probes appearances, makes war upon illusions. Hence his oft varying moods, as the one or the other part of him became ascendant, hence his fervors of idealism, and the habit of destructive criticism, which seemed inconsistent with them, hence his ardent ambitions, and his appearances of plodding mediocrity in practical life. Intensely self-conscious, he suffered much from a habit of comparing, contrasting himself with other men, with men who achieved things, who made their way, who played a part in the world. He could not read a newspaper without reflecting, sometimes bitterly, on the careers and position of men whose names were prominent in its columns. So often, he well knew, their success came only of accident, as one uses the word, of favoring circumstance, which had no relation to the man's powers and merits. Piers had no overweening self-esteem, he judged his abilities more accurately, and more severely, than any observer would have done, yet it was plain to him that he would be more than capable, so far as endowment went, of filling the high place occupied by this or the other far-shining personage. He frankly envied their success always for one and the same reason. Nothing so goaded his imagination as a report of the marriage of some leader in the world's game. He dwelt on these paragraphs, filled up on the details, grew faint with realization of the man's triumphant happiness. At another moment his reason ridiculed this self-torment. He knew that, in all probability, such a marriage implied no sense of triumph, involved no high emotions, promised nothing but the commonest domestic satisfaction. Portraits of brides in an illustrated paper sometimes wrought him to intolerable agitation. The mood of his early manhood, as when he stood before the print shop in the haymarket, now that he had lost Irene, the whole world of beautiful women called again to his senses and his soul. With the cooler moment came a reminder that these lovely faces were, for the most part, mere masks tricking out a very ordinary woman, more likely than not unintelligent, unhelpful, as the ordinary human being of either sex is wont to be. What seemed to him the crown of a man's career was, in most cases, a mere accident, deriving its chief importance from social and pecuniary considerations. 
even where a sweet countenance told truth about the life behind it how seldom did the bridegroom appreciate what he had won for the most part men who have great fortune in marriage or in anything else are incapable of tasting their success it is the imaginative being in the crowd below who marvels and is thrilled how was it with arnold jacks did he understand what had befallen him if so on what gleaming heights did he now live and move what rapture of gratitude must possess the man what humility what arrogance piers had not met him since the engagement was made known he hoped not to meet him for a long time happily in this holiday season there was no fear of an invitation to queen's gate yet the unexpected happened early in september he received a note from john jacks asking him to dine the writer said that he had been at the seaside and was tired of it and meant to spend a week or two quietly in london he was quite alone so otway need not dress reassured by the last sentence of the letter piers gladly went for he liked to talk with john jacks and had a troubled pleasure in the thought that he might hear something about the approaching marriage on his arrival he was shown into the study where his host lay on a sofa the greeting was cordial the voice cheery as ever but as mr jacks rose he had more of the appearance of old age than piers had yet seen in him he seemed to stand with some difficulty his face betokening a body ill at ease how pleasant london is in september he exclaimed with a laugh i've been driving about as one does in a town abroad just to see the streets strange that no one knows paris and rome a good deal better than london yet it's really very interesting don't you think the twinkling eye the humorous accent which had won piers affection soon allayed his disquietude at being in this house he spoke of his own recent excursion confessing that he better appreciated london from a distance ay ay i know all about that replied mr jacks his yorkshire note sounding as it did occasionally but you're young you're young what does it matter where you live to be your age again i'd live at st helens or witness you have hope man always hope and you may live to see what the world is like half a century from now it's strange to look at you and think that john jack's presence in london and alone at this time of year had naturally another explanation than that he felt tired of the seaside in truth he had come up to see a medical specialist carefully he kept from his wife the knowledge of a disease which was taking hold upon him which as he had just learnt threatened rapidly fatal results from his son also he had concealed the serious state of his health lest it should interfere with arnold's happy mood in the prospect of marriage he was no coward but a life hitherto untroubled by sickness had led him to hope that he might pass easily from the world and a doom of extinction by torture perturbed his philosophy 
he liked to forget himself in contemplation of piers otway's youth and soundness he had pleasure too in piers talk which reminded him of jerome otway some half-century ago mrs jacks was staying with her own family and from that house would pass to others equally decorous where john had promised to join her of course she was uneasy about him that entered into her role of model spouse but the excellent lady never suspected the true cause of that habit of sadness which had grown upon her husband during the last few years a melancholy which anticipated his decline in health john jacks had made the mistake natural to such a man wedding at nearly sixty a girl of much less than half his age he found of course that his wife had nothing to give him but duty and respect and before long he bitterly reproached himself with the sacrifice of which he was guilty soar on thy manhood clear of those whose toothless winter claws at may and take her as the vein of rose athwart an evening gray these lines met his eye one day in a new volume which bore the name of george meredith and they touched him nearly the poem they closed gave an utterance to the manful resignation of one who has passed the age of love yet is tempted by love's sweetness and john jacks took to heart the reproach it seemed to level at himself putting aside the point of years he had not chosen with any discretion he married a handsome face a graceful figure just as any raw boy might have done his wife he suspected was not the woman to suffer greatly in her false position she had very temperate blood and a thoroughly english devotion to the proprieties none the less he had done her wrong for she belonged to a gentle family in mediocre circumstances and his prospective m p his solid wealth were sore temptations to put before such a girl he had known yes he assuredly knew that it was nothing but a socially sanctioned purchase beauty should have become to him but the vein of rose to be regarded with gentle admiration and with reverence from afar he yielded to an unworthy temptation and being a man of unusual sensitiveness very soon paid the penalty in self-contempt he could not love his wife he could scarce honor her for she too must consciously have sinned against the highest law her irreproachable behavior only saddened him now that he found himself under sentence of death his solace was the thought that his widow would still be young enough to redeem her error if she were capable of redeeming it alone with his guest in the large dining-room and compelled to make only pretense of eating and drinking he talked of the many things with the old spontaneity the accustomed liberal kindliness and dropped at length upon the subject piers was waiting for you know i dare say that arnold is going to marry i have heard of it piers answered with the best smile he could command you can imagine it pleases me i don't see how he could have been luckier dr derwent is one of the finest men i know 
and his daughter is worthy of him. She is, I am sure, said Piers, in a balanced voice, which sounded mere civility. And when silence had lasted rather too long, the host having fallen into reverie, he added, Will it take place soon? Ah, the wedding? About Christmas, I think. Arnold is looking for a house. By the by, you know young Derwent? Eustace? Piers answered that he had only the slightest acquaintance with the young man. Not brilliant, I think, said Mr. Jacks, musingly, but amiable, straight. I don't know that he'll do much at the bar. Again he lost himself for a little, his knitted brows seeming to indicate an anxious thought. Now you shall tell me anything you care to, about business, said the host, when they had seated themselves in the library, and after that I have something to show you, something you'll like to see, I think. Otway's curiosity was at a loss when presently he saw his host take from a drawer a little packet of papers. I had forgotten all about these, said Mr. Jacks. They are manuscripts of your father, writings of various kinds, which he sent me in the early fifties. Turning out my old papers, I came across them the other day, and thought I would give them to you. He rustled the faded sheets, glancing over them with a sad smile. There's an amusing thing, called historical fragment. I remember, oh, I remember very well, how it pleased me when I first read it. He read it aloud now, with many a chuckle, many a pause of sly emphasis. The story of the last war between the Asiatic kingdoms of Deroba and Kalaya, though it has reached us in narrative far too concise, is one of the most interesting chapters in the history of ancient civilization. They were bordering states, peopled by races closely akin, whose languages, it appears, were mutually intelligible. Each had developed its own polity, and had advanced to a high degree of refinement in public and private life. Wars between them had been frequent, but at the time with which we are concerned, the spirit of hostility was all but forgotten in a happy peace of long duration. Each country was ruled by an aged monarch, beloved of the people, but under the burden of years, grown of late somewhat less vigilant than was consistent with popular welfare. Thus it came to pass that power fell into the hands of unscrupulous statesmen, who, aided by singular circumstances, succeeded in reviving for a moment the old sanguinary jealousies. We are told that a general in the army of Deroba, having a turn for experimental chemistry, had discovered a substance of terrible explosive power, which, by the exercise of further ingenuity, he had adapted for use in warfare. About the same time, a public official in Kalaya, whose duty it was to convey news to the community by means of a primitive system of manuscript placarding, hit upon a mechanical method whereby news sheets could be multiplied very rapidly and be sold to readers all over the kingdom. Now the Deroban general felt eager to test his discovery in a campaign, 
and happening to have a quarrel with the politician in the neighboring state did his utmost to excite hostile feelings against Kalaya. on the other hand the Kalayan official his cupidity excited by the profits already arising from his invention desired nothing better than some stirring event which would lead to still greater demand for the news sheets he distributed and so he also was led to the idea of stirring up international strife to be brief this intrigues succeeded only too well war was actually declared the armies were mustered and marched to the encounter they met at a point of the common frontier where only a little brook flowed between the two kingdoms it was nightfall each host encamped to await the great engagement on which the morrow would decide between them it must be understood that the durobans and the kalayans differed markedly in national characteristics the former people was distinguished by joyous vitality and a keen sense of humor the latter by a somewhat meditative disposition inclining to timidity and doubtless these qualities had become more pronounced during the long peace which would naturally favor them now when night had fallen on the camps the common soldiers on each side began to discuss over their evening meal the position in which they found themselves the men of Duroba, having drunk well as their habit was fell into an odd state of mind what they exclaimed to one another after all these years of tranquillity are we really going to fight with the kalayans and to slaughter them and be ourselves slaughtered pray what is it all about who can tell us not a man could answer save with the vaguest generalities and so the debate continuing the wonder growing from moment to moment at length and all of a sudden the Duroban camp echoed with huge peals of laughter why if we soldiers have no cause of quarrel what are we doing here shall we be mangled and killed to please our general with the turn for chemistry that were a joke indeed and as soon as mirth permitted the army rose as one man threw together their belongings and with jovial songs trooped off to sleep comfortably in a town a couple of miles away the kalayans meanwhile had been occupied with the very same question they were anything but martial of mood and the soldiery ill at ease in their camp grumbled and protested after all why are we here cried one to the other who wants to injure the durobans and what man among us desires to be blown to pieces by their new instruments of war pray why should we fight if the great officials are angry as the news sheets tell us e'en let them do the fighting themselves at this moment there sounded from the enemy's camp a stupendous roar it was much like laughter no doubt the durobans were jubilant in anticipation of their victory fear seized the kalayans they rose like one man and incontinently fled far into the sheltering night thus ended the war the last between these happy nations who 
not very long after united to form a noble state under one ruler it is interesting to note that the original instigators of hostility did not go without their deserts the Durobin general having been duly tried for a crime against his country was imprisoned in a spacious building the rooms of which were hung with great pictures representing every horror of battle with the ghastliest fidelity here he was supplied with materials for chemical experiment to occupy his leisure and very shortly by accident blew himself to pieces the Kalayan publicist was also convicted of treason against the state they banished him to a desert island where for many hours daily he had to multiply copies of his news sheet that issue which contained the declaration of war and at evening to burn them all he presently became imbecile and so passed away piers laughed with delight whether it ever got into print said mr jacks i don't know your father was often careless about his best things i'm afraid he was never quite convinced that ideals of that kind influence the world yet they do you know though it's a slow business it's thought that leads the multitude following in its own fashion said piers dryly rousseau teaches liberty and fraternity france learns the lesson and plunges into ninety three with knapp to put things straight again for all that a step was taken we are better for jean jacques a little better and for napoleon too i suppose napoleon a wild beast with a genius for arithmetic john jacks let his eyes rest upon the speaker interested and amused that's how you see him not a bad definition i suppose the truth is we know nothing about human history the old view was good for working by jehovah holding his balance smiting on one side and rewarding on the other it's our national view to this day the english are an old testament people they never cared about the new do you know that there's a sect who hold that the english are the lost tribes the people of the promise i see a great deal to be said for that idea no other nation has such profound sympathy with the history and the creeds of israel did you ever think of it that old testament religion suits us perfectly our arrogance and our pugnaciousness this accounts for its hold on the minds of the people it couldn't be stronger if the bloodthirsty old tribes were truly our ancestors the english seized upon their spiritual inheritance as soon as a translation of the bible put it before them in catholic days we fought because we enjoyed it and made no pretenses since the reformation we have fought for jehovah i suppose said piers the english are the least christian of all so-called christian peoples undoubtedly they simply don't know the meaning of their prime christian virtue humility but that's neither here nor there in talking of progress you remember goldsmith pride in their port defiance in their eye i see the lords of humankind pass by our pride has been a good thing on the whole 
whether it will still be now that it's so largely the pride of riches let him say who is alive fifty years hence he paused and added gravely i'm afraid the national character is degenerating we were always too fond of liquor and heaven knows our responsibility for drunkenness all over the world but worse than that is our gambling you may drink and be a fine fellow but every gambler is a sneak and possibly a criminal we're beginning now to gamble for slices of the world we're getting base too in our groveling before the millionaire who as often as not got his money vilely this sort of thing won't do for the lords of humankind our pride if we don't look out will turn to bluffing and bullying i'm afraid we govern selfishly where we've conquered we hear dark things of india and worse of africa and hear the roaring of the jingoes johnson defied patriotism you know as the last refuge of a scoundrel it looks as if it might presently be the last refuge of a fool meanwhile said piers the real interests of england real progress in national life seem to be as good as lost sight of yes more and more they think that material prosperity is progress so it is up to a certain point and whoever stops there look at germany once the peaceful home of pure intellect the land of goth once yes and my fear is that our brute blustering bismarck may be coming but he suddenly brightened croakers be hanged the civilizers are at work too and they have their way in the end think of a man like your father who seemed to pass and be forgotten was it really so i'll warrant that at this hour jerome otway's spirit is working in many of our best minds there's no calculating the power of the man who speaks from his very heart his words don't perish though he himself may lose courage listening piers felt a globe pass into all the currents of his life if only he exclaimed in a voice that trembled i had as much strength as desire to carry on his work why who knows replied john jacks looking with encouragement wherein mingled something of affection you have the power of sincerity i see that speak always as you believe and who knows what opportunity you may find for making yourself heard john jacks reflected deeply for a few moments i'm going away in a day or two he said at length in a measured voice and my movements are uncertain uncertain but we shall meet again before the end of the year when he had left the house piers recalled the tone of this remark and dwelt upon it with disquietude end of chapter twenty one